today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear the truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. Remember, Jesus was the same one who said, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. He quoted that from the commandments. He declared that. He lived that. But Jesus is also the very same one who said, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. When we come to Jesus for salvation, God asks us to count the cost. He understands that one such cost is being known as strange or overly zealous when we give our hearts and lives to the King of Kings. Pastor David teaches us in today's message from Luke chapter 8 that even Jesus experienced alienation in his own earthly family. Therefore, Christ understands and has compassion when we experience loneliness. However, for everything that we lose or give up, it is nothing compared to the glory of knowing him. Now here's Pastor David with part two of today's message entitled, A Life of Intention. just the son of Mary? And aren't his brothers uh, uh, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? A lot of people say, oh, well, they're speaking about cousins. No, they're not speaking about cousins. They're talking about the reality of his half-brothers and his half-sisters. As a matter of fact, when Mark declares that in chapter 6, verse 3 of his gospel record, he says, is not the Adelphos of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon here, the Adelphos, that's a Greek word meaning of the same womb, the male gender of the same womb. And then he says, are not his Adelphi here with us? That's the female gender, meaning of the same womb. Now back here in Luke, At first glance, you would think that Jesus wasn't very compassionate, wasn't very caring toward his family. Hey, your family's outside. It doesn't matter. Right here's my family. My my mother and my brothers are the ones that are doing the will of God. But again, as I said, there's a lot more to this than meets the eye uh, than what we see in Luke's record. In order to get a clear understanding of it, we need to take Mark's gospel to see the whole event. Keep your place there in Luke. We'll be back there in just a moment. Turn to your left, just uh, several pages, to Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter, or I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 3. We're in Luke, I understand that. Now we're going to Mark, okay. You think you're confused, you ought to see this guy. 
In Mark chapter 3, we see a little bit more of the backstory of what's going on. In Mark 3, beginning in verse 20, this is Mark's uh, uh, version of the events that are going on that we're studying and that we're looking at in Luke. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20, we read, Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. In other words, the, the multitude of people were pressing on Jesus and his disciples so much, they couldn't even take a lunch break. Okay? Verse 21 says, But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, what? He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, they said, Oh, he has Beelzebub. That's a demon. And he says, By the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. The very unfortunate reading of the King James Version says that when his friends heard about it, And yet the Greek is better understood as those who were with him or his relations or better yet, his kinspeople or his family. And so this is all taking place. Uh, Jesus responds to the scribes and said, no, you're dealing with a demon. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And on he goes down. And and then then we get to verse uh, 31. It says, then his brothers and mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. The multitude was sitting around, they said, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Why are his mother and brothers outside seeking him? Because they thought that he was out of his mind. They thought, Jesus, you've gone over the edge. This Messiah's brothers in particular. I don't think Mary was a part of this, other than being drawn along with uh, her other sons. I look at this and I see his half-brothers coming to that point and says, he is out of his mind, he's, going, he's embarrassing himself, he's going to embarrass us, let's go get him out of here. But Jesus' response was, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Many have speculated, and I believe it's a, uh, well within reason, that the family of Jesus, his half-brothers and his half-sisters, really and truly felt he was off his rocker. Felt that, again, they, they needed to get him away from the crowds. Jesus fully understood that even if someone is family by birth, and catch this, church, even if someone is family by birth, unless they know the reality of kingdom life, true life in Christ, they will not understand what drives you as a follower of Jesus. They have no clue. They have no clue why you would take such a beautiful Sunday morning, pack up the family, get all dressed up, and come and sit down and listen to a guy lecture for about 45 minutes. Why in the world would you do that? They have no idea why in the world you live your life the way you do. You choose the things you choose to do other than, well, I don't know, they're into some religious thing. They, they don't understand. It just does not to com- compute to them because they don't know the Savior. They won't understand, they can't understand what it means for you and I to live an intentional life in absolute and full surrender in obedience to the Word of God and to the directions of the Savior. Jesus understood that the connection that we have in an eternal way 
is even stronger than the connections we have in the flesh. And some of you understand that very well. Perhaps you're the only believer in your family. And you know that when you really stepped out in your walk with Christ, things got a little weird with the rest of the family. They, 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 they didn't treat you the same. They didn't act the same. They didn't respond the same. And the closer you got to Christ, the more you got involved with the things of Christ, the more distant the family became and the closer the body of Christ became. Because I believe that the tie of blood is very strong. The tie of the blood of Jesus Christ in our lives. You see, you've got a different focus in your life if you're a believer than any non-believer, even a family member. You've got a different intention in your life than others in your family, particularly those who have no connection with Christ. Jesus understood those things. Remember, Jesus was the same one who said, for God commanded, saying, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. He quoted that from the commandments. He declared that. He lived that. But Jesus is also the very same one who said, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own family or of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Those are powerful words. That's a dynamic that most believers aren't willing to grasp and hold on to and live in their lives. And so the lives of so many believers become compromised because of the pressure even of family. When you come together as a family unit, when you come together with a, with a family reunion or a multitude of your family together, does suddenly the light that shines so bright as we sit comfortably here together, does it suddenly get stuck under the bed and I'll pull it out when I leave here? Or do you maintain the bright and the reality and the truth of your faith and of your love for Jesus Christ, even when it's uncomfortable with those who are so close to you as family members? Jesus understood that there's going to be times of division when it comes to having, when, when it comes to you and I having a sold out relationship with Jesus that interferes with the direction or the desires of the beliefs or the theology or the background of the rest of our family. And even those who may declare faith in Christ who are within their family, if they have a very shallow commitment to Christ, or they feel they have a commitment, yet in reality they have no relationship at all with Jesus, that it's still going to be uncomfortable for you to live full out for Jesus. There's going to be times when family members won't understand your depth, won't understand your commitment. There's going to be times of questioning. There'll, There'll even be times of ridicule or outright attacks against your faith and your commitment to Christ. So what do you do in those cases? Where Where do you turn When, again, your own family starts speaking of the foolishness of your faith and of your commitment to Christ. You need to understand that Jesus experienced those very same attacks. 
You're out of your mind. Come, come, let us take you away from here. This isn't what you should be doing. That's Jesus' own brothers and sisters doing that to him. Jesus experienced the same thing, and yet he didn't back down on his commitment to do all that the Father had called him to do. And because of that, the reality of the kingdom of God shone through him and through his life in a way that nothing else could have. And the same is true for you and I. The consistency, the intentionality of our lives as believers will make an impact on our family. Because of what was going on in Christ was real. It wasn't just religion. Because he had such a close relationship with the Father. It wasn't just ceremony. It wasn't just ritual. The intentionality of his life even impacted his non-believing family. So what kind of impact was there on his family in the long run? Well, we know, we believe that Mary, again, was, was connected. She, I believe that she began to understand, even from the time of the announcement of the, 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 the supernatural birth that was going to take place, and even in those early days, I believe that Mary understood. Mary was with him throughout all of his ministry. She was there at the very end, at the resurrection, all the way there. But what about the rest? What about the rest of his family? Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts. That's to the right a few pages. The book of Acts, chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, this is after the resurrection of Jesus. He had been with his followers for many days at this point in time. He's getting ready to ascend back into heaven. But he told his followers there down in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. He wanted them to go back to Jerusalem and there in Jerusalem wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. So as they were waiting they were going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit as he came upon them. So they returned back to Jerusalem. They went back to that upper room, along uh, all of the uh, apostles together, and along with them, there were many other followers of Jesus, 120 folks all together. And in Acts chapter 1, down in verse 12, we read this. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. And who was there? There was Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. So here's the 11 disciples or apostles that are left. Remember, Judas Iscariot went out and hung himself. But verse 14 is where I want your attention to be drawn. These all continued with one accord in prayer and in supplication with the women. And I believe that's the women that we spoke about last week that followed and continued to minister to the needs. With the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and who else? His brothers. His brothers, the ones who not too long prior to that were saying, you're nuts. Come away from there. Now they're there in the upper room. Something dynamic had taken place. The ones who thought he was nuts, I believe, are now believers. It was only after his death and his resurrection that the ones who had rejected his testimony came to true faith. And now they're in the upper room with all of the others waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. They were in one accord, in one mind, one intention. 
They weren't coming still with, with questioning and wonderings. No, now they had that intention and that purpose as believers. They wanted to be found obedient to the words of the Savior. And we find in the balance of the New Testament the testimony of the life of faith of at least two of his half-brothers. You need to understand that the apostle James, he died fairly early on. He was martyred by Herod in Acts chapter 12. After Herod saw how much killing James pleased the masses of the people, he arrested Peter the apostle and had full intentions of taking his head off too. But the church began praying for Peter's release. And then supernaturally, Peter was allowed to be released from the jail. And he goes up and he begins knocking on the door where the people are are praying for him. They come and open the door and Peter reveals, and there's a lot to that story, but anyway, Peter reveals, no, I'm fine, but Peter tells them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and then he tells them, he says, now go and tell these things to James and to the brethren. Now, wait a minute, to James? I thought James was beheaded. James the apostle was beheaded, but not James the half-brother of the Lord. You see, he had now become a powerful part of the church. And Peter says, go and tell James and tell the others. Peter wasn't talking about calling a dead guy. No, talk to the half-brother of my Lord. And we see this same James a little bit later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15. He's standing now and he's speaking the final correction and the direction for the church as they deal with these new Gentile converts. In Acts chapter 15, he stands up and as, as a spokesman for the church. Uh, again, this is what's known as the First Jerusalem Council. And it seems that James becomes the spokesman there, the half-brother of the Lord. And then still later in Acts 21, the Apostle Paul visits James, the Lord's brother, and the elders of the church at Jerusalem. And then in the book of Galatians, Paul talks about how James stood along with Peter and John as the pillar of the church. It's not the apostle James. No, he died early on. He was martyred early on. This is James, the half-brother of the Lord. And certain men were sent directly from James to go to that church in Galatia to kind of check them out to see how they're doing. It was the same James also who wrote the New Testament book, the letter James, written to the persecuted church. One more, one other brother of Jesus. The one that we read about, whose name was Judas, uh, who was also a half-brother. Well, because Judas wasn't a real popular name after a certain event just prior to Jesus' crucifixion, uh, his, his name was shortened to Jude. Jude is the writer of that short little one-chapter book just before Revelation. Jude introduced himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. The only brother, the only James that had a brother named Jude was James, the half-brother of our Lord, whose brother was Judas. It is Jude who's writing this book. It was, again, we, we recognize these things. So why do I share all of this with you? What, what value is it for us today? I believe that an intentional life lived for Jesus had an effect on the earthly family. As Jesus lived his life intentionally, even though his brothers and sisters did not believe in him during his ministry, after his death they did. And you might be a witness and a testimony to your family in a way that you may never see this side of glory. They may never really and truly accept your testimony for the things of Christ, this side of glory. But what about when you pass? Wow. 
She was truly a righteous woman. He was truly a man who sought after God. None of us perfect, but they will see that within our lives. Uh, Again, it makes a difference, gang, in how we live our life. The intentionality of our life affects the lives of others in ways that, again, it may happen now, we may see it now, but in many cases, it won't be until we get to heaven. So my question for you right now is, are you living your life intentionally? Are you living your life intentionally? Are you desiring to see the lives of others changed by the testimony of your life? Are you intentional in your devotion to Christ? So I really struggle with having a devotional life. I I don't get up early in the morning or I fall asleep at night. When I That's not so much what I'm meaning and what I'm saying. What I'm talking about is, do you personally have an ongoing, growing relationship with Christ? Do you desire to grow in Him? That's part of intentional living. What about intentional in lifestyle? The choices that you make as one who professes Jesus as your Lord. Does the world see in you difference? Or does your lifestyle match the things of this world? And it's real easy for you to blend in with the world. You and I as believers need to be intentional in our lifestyle. What about in your service to Jesus? Are you intentional in your service? Are you looking for opportunities to use of your life in order in service to our Lord, in service to His church? What about intentional in assembly? The Word says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Are you intentional about being, man, in fellowship with other believers? Well, pastor, are you saying i got to be there every time the doors open? No, I'm not saying that, but I'm also saying it probably wouldn't hurt some of you. But at the same time, where are you? Is it just, well, it's just my Sunday morning thing? Or do you look forward to assembling and coming together with other believers to be encouraged and to be an encourager? And what about, are you intentional in your stewardship? Oh, I knew he'd talk about money. Yeah, I'm talking about money, but I'm talking about every other area of stewardship in your life, too your talents, your time, and your treasure? Are you intentional? Do you look for ways that you can use of your time in service to the Lord and in service to His church? When was the last time you volunteered on a consistent basis to serve and to let that be a calling in your life that I'm serving the Lord in this fellowship in a way that, again, is a demonstration of my life? And I don't let other things get in that way. Why? Because I've committed my life, I've committed my service to the Lord. Your talents, and yes, your treasures. Do you have an intentional way that you support the work of ministry? Or do you just say, at the end of the week, well, i got five bucks left after the end of the week. I'll throw that in the pot. Thank you, God, very much. Or is there an intentional way that you support work of ministry, the kingdom of God in your life? What does the world see in you? Does it see intentional living, but more importantly than what the world sees? What does the Lord see in you? No one, when he has has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel and puts it under the bed. But he sets it on the lampstand that those who enter in may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to the light. Therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given. 
and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. Learning more about Jesus is the single most important thing we can do as Christians. As we carefully consider how Jesus lived, we see beautiful examples that can apply to our lives. Though the entire Bible is rich with symbols and images that point to Jesus, the Gospels are grand central station for who Jesus is. Join us each day as Pastor David teaches through the Gospel of Luke. You can get a free copy of today's teaching at our website. Simply log on to TheOpenWord.com. That's TheOpenWord.com. Although the open word is a huge blessing, we pray that it's not your only source for the teaching of the word of God. It's our hope that you're attending a church that teaches God's word from beginning to end. Here's Tracy with more information about our service times here at Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. Maybe you're listening right now in Casa Grande and you don't have a home church. We want to take this time to invite you to join us for worship. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. at 6.30 p.m. every Wednesday and Saturday. For more information, call us at 520-836-9676. That's 520-836-9676. Or log on to TheOpenWord.com and follow the link to the church website. Thanks, Tracy. Well, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Please join us next time for the next edition of The Open Word.